Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Nico and I chat with Brian and Jeremy from Risk Zero. We catch up on the state of the project and map out the pieces of the stack. From the Risk Zero ZKVM, which utilizes the Risk Five instruction set architecture, the Bonsai Proving Service, and the Type Zero ZKEVM Zeth. We chat about how they made some of their design choices, how all these pieces work together, and what we can expect in the future. Now, before we kick off, I want to share a message from one of our top sponsors of the recent ZK Summit 10, Alio. Alio is a new layer one blockchain based on zero knowledge technology. They are offering more than a million dollars in grants that you can apply for over at alio.org grants. Before we start, I also want to highlight our upcoming ZK Hack Istanbul event. This IRL hackathon is happening from November 10th through 12th. Be sure to get your application in. And if you are accepted, please RSVP. Only those who RSVP will be admitted. I've added a link to this and the Alio grants in our show notes. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Launching soon, Namada is a proof-of-stake L1 blockchain focused on multi-chain asset-agnostic privacy via a unified set. Namada is natively interoperable with fast finality chains via IBC and with Ethereum using a trust-minimized bridge. Any compatible assets from these ecosystems, whether fungible or non-fungible, can join Namada's unified shielded set effectively erasing the fragmentation of privacy sets that has limited multi-chain privacy guarantees in the past. By remaining within the shielded set, users can utilize shielded actions to engage privately with applications on various chains, including Ethereum, Osmosis, and Celestia, that are not natively private. Nomada's unique incentivization is embodied in its shielded set rewards. These rewards function as a bootstrapping tool, rewarding multi-chain users who enhance the overall privacy of Nomada participants. Follow Namada on Twitter, at Namada, for more information, and join the community on Discord, discord.gg forward slash Namada. And now, here's our episode. Today, Nico and I are here with Brian and Jeremy from Risk Zero. Welcome back. Thanks. Excited to be here. Very nice to be here again. Cool. Hey, Nico. Hey, Anna. Hey, Brian. Hey, Jeremy. Hey. So one quick disclosure before we start in on this one, ZK Validator and I personally are investors in Risk Zero, and Nico's team over at Geometry is also an investor. And we are really excited to jump in and get an update. Um, you were on the show almost exactly one year ago. So if anyone is curious sort of about your backstories, we're going to add a link to that in the show notes. And last time we had you on, to me, you were just going public with what you were building at the time. In that episode, we discussed kind of how you were constructing your architecture. I'm going to try to paraphrase what Risk Zero is, and then I want to hear if this is still how you explain it. But in that episode, we talked about how what you're doing is you're basically taking Risk Five, a processor architecture, and sticking that into a ZK circuit. And that would mean that you could write like you could write programs in C++ or Rust and then compile it down into something that it understands already in a circuit. Is that still how you explain risk zero to people? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the core technology hasn't changed uh, at all. I would say it's, it's gotten more mature and the set of packages and libraries and programs that you can run without modification has increased a lot. We support oh, cool. 1,300 of the top 1,500 Rust crates or something like that. Oh, wow. Did you still focus, though, on like C++ and Rust, or have you expanded to any other languages? I think we've mostly focused on Rust at this point because um, it seems to be a very good language for um, writing things in that is familiar to the sort of um, you know crypto space. Although we've we've definitely discussed expanding our support to other languages. Um, one of our sort of goals is to have really excellent support for anything we support. So before we take on something, you know, uh, we want to make sure that we have the resources to do a really good job of it. Um, so. Yeah, we could get in more into that as well in terms of like which use cases, which different languages are, are more suited for, I think. And, you know, inside crypto, certainly when you're thinking about applications with a lot of TVL behind them, people seem to be gravitating towards Rust for, for really good reasons. Um, yeah. But then if you start to think outside of Web3, you start to see uh, increasing interest in a variety of languages. What do we mean by support here? Is it 
that there are some things in the ISA that are missing to support other languages? No, but it, it's it's more like, for example, on Rust, some packages have assembly code in them, and the assembly code only runs on x86, for example, or um, you know, certain uh, things expect certain kinds of hardware accelerators to exist that don't actually exist, or or things like that. So, so by and large, most things um, just compile and work automatically. Uh, but there are some special cases that still do require additional work. Right, but then on a per language basis, you also have to think about like designing memory allocators that are that are most well suited for the zk VM. But most importantly, it's just trying to get the tool chain into a situation where mm. it's really accessible by your sort of average C++ dev, which, you know, Cargo's, Cargo's amazing in a lot of ways, and C++ and the sort of programmer build ecosystem there is not, not so great. So it's like a support challenge. You just mentioned that you would like, you've brought in a lot of the crates. Is this something you have to do? No. But we do test them all. Okay. So, so uh, basically, we don't need to do anything on a per crate basis, but we do run big sweeps of crates to see which crates tests pass inside the ZKVM and which ones do not. Oh. And the ones that don't, we look into why. And usually it's some kind of like, uh, you know, thing that assumes it's on a certain type of platform or something particular about some low level detail. Yeah, it happens to use random numbers or um, things like this, which are obviously complex to to get right in a zk context. Mm. Um, but some some packages you do need to modify a little bit here and there. I used the term um, just in that definition before processor architecture as describing Risk Five. Is that correct, or is it a VM? This is what I'm trying to figure out. So the Risk Five spec lays out the rules that have to be followed between the RISC-V software and what is the hardware, like the, the basically the, the, the way the software talks to hardware. Um, and that's, you know, called an ISA typically. But we actually implement a VM, but the VM follows that set of rules. And so it looks like a RISC-V processor to all the software is basically the, okay. the short version. So it's kind of both. <laughs> it's kind of both. Like when you think of a actual like hardware architecture, you're probably talking about a very specific revision, like a 8486, like uh, Rev seven or something like that. That's the actual like where all the gates are. Whereas this is just the instruction set architecture, which defines the opcodes, you know, in Ethereum parlance that you need to to actually interact with the machine. So we we look from a, from an application perspective exactly like a RISC-V chip. But obviously, there's there's no hardware there. Cool. So, um, listening back to your episode a year ago, I noticed that you guys mentioned numbers of like the speed of this virtual processor, like how many cycles can you prove and how many seconds of real time. And the numbers back then were like 30 kilohertz uh, on an M1 CPU and like 10 megahertz on a GPU cluster. Is this still relevant today? Have things evolved? Can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, we've, we've actually made some performance improvements uh, since that point. Uh, and in terms of the sort of GPU cluster kind of use case, uh, Bonsai actually, um, you know, we can sort of get that to go uh, quite fast. Uh, you know, uh, I think, I think you know, so we're probably at the 30 megahertz sort of level for some use cases. And we're continuing to work on uh, performance improvements, and we expect a number of additional performance improvements um, over the course of the next uh, couple of months. Um, but I think one thing that's interesting is, is I think in terms of the one big, huge performance delta, I think, between now and then is the fact that at the time you could only run smallish programs. Mm. Um, and I think that with the creation of continuations, uh, one of the huge uh, things now is that you can run any program, no matter how large. Um, and, you know, you can prove entire ETH blocks or run very complex logic. And I think that that has opened up the door to a lot of use cases. And what's interesting is that we find that most of the times, uh, a lot of the pe things that people are working on, the performance doesn't really make that much difference because the ability to run these use cases is so transformative that the, um, you know, exact people are not, people are not, that concerned with the exact number of clock cycles because it makes something go from not doable to doable. And mm. one of the cool things about the way continuations works is that um, we don't require some massive machine with a huge amount of memory and ever-increasing sort of uh, computing power as you uh, run larger programs. We simply 
distribute the work wider across a m- more GPU nodes or whatever, right? So it's a lot more tunable in that regard. What is it that you call continuations? Like I start a proof, I start my program in one proof, and then I resume it in the next proof? Uh Yeah, so it's basically a way to take a very long serial execution and to break the process of proving it into multiple small segments. Um, And then each segment is proven, and then we combine the proofs of each segment with recursion. Um, So so yes, in some sense, you're proving the program over multiple smaller pieces, but that's all transparent to the user. So the user just says, run this huge program, and then we sort of take care of that. Yeah, there is a mechanism in place for users to be able to explicitly choose when they want to pause if they do and then to resume from that later. So if you do want to pursue like more complex parallelization strategies and things like this, there are some mechanisms to allow that. Um, But yeah. Is it a little bit similar to like batching proofs, though, or is it? Is this a different paradigm? Like, actually, yeah, I don't think we've ever heard that continuation. Yeah, it's sort of a a, new, a unique thing um, as far as we know. But I think, it, so it is similar to batching in the sense that batching allows you to run lots of small proofs. But in this case, you're running one large, it's, it's sort of the opposite in some sense, right? In batching, you're taking a number of small proofs and running them in, inside of a larger proof to improve performance. And in this case, you're taking a very large proof and breaking it down mm. into smaller proofs in order to... Um, allow you to run larger um, operations, basically. Yeah, this sort of process is the thing that really let uh, this sort of Zeph project actually succeed and that, that we announced recently and have let you know people start to experiment with running full ETH blocks based on code that um, you know we didn't write. It just utilizes REVM and Reth and a couple other crates um, to, to prove full ETH blocks. So we had to make mm. some very minor modifications. But that proof is about 4 billion cycles, and we sort of use continuations to split it up into 4,000 um, 1 million cycle chunks and then prove those all in parallel and use recursion to join them together. Is the continuations in any way like specific to Risk Five, or have other teams in the space used this kind of technique? I mean, I think anything that has sort of a VM-based structure, um, you know, should in theory be able to, to do this same type of thing. And I think some of the people looking at folding are doing similar ideas. Exactly. So from a theory perspective, continuations is very close to IVC, if anyone remembers oh, wow. like the Nova episode. Mm-hmm. So incrementally verifiable computation. And this is something we've seen the Lurk people do um, for their VM as well. But I think th- there are obviously some differences. And from what I understand, yours is very paralyzable. Yes. So one of the things is, um, and I think that some of the folding schemes could be modified to support this, but most of them currently sort of prove one segment at a time. Um, and so, you know, you're, you add up all the time for doing all of the proofs. Whereas uh, our mechanism is to basically do a very fast, normal emulation. So not doing proving, just emulating a risk five like you would run in a normal emulator determine all of the events that occur during the course of the whole program's execution, and then split out those pieces um, to a wide number of machines that all can run simultaneously. Um, And then we use a binary tree to do recursion so that the amount of time, the wall clock time required for the recursion is small because we can also do those recursive um, combinations also in parallel. So it's very um, focused from a design perspective on trying to reduce the wall clock time and increase parallelism. Um, and, and also, I think one of the other goals is to be able to utilize consumer-grade hardware. So, um, you know, none of the proving processes involved in, like, the even the sort of Zeth, you know, proven entire, you know, ETH block really used more than 18 gigabytes of GPU RAM or, you know, uh, what have you. I think we could, we could actually have brought that down. That just was a nice number for the machines mm-hmm. that run um, AWS. So by doing that, we, we basically reduce the cost of the computation by being able to run on lower performance machines. As well as making it yeah, more appealing and, and um, useful for future decentralization use cases and or you can imagine running parts of proofs on the client side and then having other parts that don't involve private information running on servers and so forth. It's funny, just going back to the folding idea, I actually, I didn't even bring it up because I just assumed it was different. And actually, I want to do a quick check because like in folding, doesn't each chunk need to be the same? No. Okay. Uh, so 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 because we're using general recursion, we could actually verify 
proofs from different circuits. Um, so currently, we pretty much only use the RISC-V circuit for the majority of things. And the RISC-V circuit includes a couple of accelerators in it. But in terms of some of the cryptographic accelerators, we're considering building separate circuits for some of the accelerators, running those the, the accelerator operations in a different circuit, and then using recursion to combine that with the RISC-V uh, circuit. So that will actually allow some very interesting use cases in the future. Cool. So, you know, one of the questions is like, it's been a year. What are you, what have you focused on? What have you explored? And maybe we should say like, what have you released? Because there's actually like products and things that people have been able to play with. So let's start with the, what have you explored over the last year? Yeah. So over the last year, I mean, we explored uh, specifically APIs and trying to get the continuations right. And just really the overall developer experience, as well as um, sort of the very early versions of Bonsai, which um, basically influenced sort of a coprocessor architecture um, based on this relayer contract. We talked about this at ETH Denver even. We had built a sort of club internally that if you place orders on chain, you can then do the order matching off chain and and then settle the settle the orders on chain. And you're seeing actually some other people start to adapt uh, or adopt these approaches with the ZK Uniswap that, that Diego um, put out. This is the ZK AMM? Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. that's on Bonsai then. That was built on Bonsai. It's built, I mean, I think they just built it locally using ZK VM, but if you wanted to, to actually productionize something like that, you'd probably want to use Bonsai. Okay, but is it a full-fledged coprocessor on mainnet today? I always thought of it more like a test environment somehow. <laughs> Sorry if that's well, not it's true. It's been a test environment for the, <laughs> for the past while, but yeah, the okay. um, people use it right now in a through a REST API. So it looks like a lot like a cloud SaaS service right now, but it will be on chain um, coming up pretty soon. So um, yeah, we're basically going to launch a very simple test net that actually dials back some of the coprocessor sort of features that we had mm. put into it and really just makes it a simple request to proof on chain. And is this sort of a, a permission service that ReZero is operating or is this meant to be decentralized and have people contribute? Yeah, so the very first version will be um, will be permissionless in the sense that it runs on chain. However, the sort of people fulfilling the proofs initially will just be us. But it's very much our intention to start expanding that set uh, as soon as as soon as we can. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think you know this last year, um, a lot of our goals have been to get I mean, continuations was a huge a huge feature, and uh, I think also just trying to get to sort of a one zero with the zkvm. Um, we've been developing really rapidly in terms of improving the APIs and making changes, but we really want to get to the place where we can present a very consistent, you know, reliable thing going forward that people can start to build on and know that it's not going to change out from under them. So trying to get all the necessary work to get to that 1.0, um, I think we're very close to that. Um, and then, yes, I think that, yeah, obviously um, this sort of bonsai sort of service which allows you to run large proofs on chain uh and you know will eventually be decentralized is sort of the next big um step forward we hope to you know get something out rather soon uh in terms of being able to let people use that mm. yeah i think going participating in various hackathons you know the the delta between we went to eth denver participated in eth global and you know somebody won using Resero for the proof of exploit um, nice. but something we learned from there is that you know the developer experience was really uh, an obstacle for a ton of teams. And I think, you know, we saw between there and ZK Hack, uh, we made a ton of changes and really noticed uh, some really positive upticks in, in the kinds of applications people were able to make. And so yeah, yeah. we continue to invest in all that as well. That was ZK Hack Lisbon, where we, yeah. I think your bounties, you had a lot of bounties and you actually had a lot of submissions. People talked about how it was kind of easy. Well, Easier than other tools to use Risk Zero. <laughs> I think that was one of our key takeaways when we did like the retrospective on ZK Hack. Yeah. It was like, wow, man, Risk Zero, like people are really latching onto it because it's so easy to like write stuff. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, our, our goal as a company has always been to sort of democratize the, the ZK development to make it possible for, you know, ordinary developers to be able to write ZK systems. That's cool. You mentioned you were dialing back some of the coprocessor features. I kind of want to just talk about the coprocessor space. Like there's a lot of teams that are kind of offering new, like a nuanced version of a coprocessor. They don't all call it that. And actually there was this period of time where I was also kind of bringing Risk Zero into that field when I'd list them. 
But it sounds like, yeah, I'm just really curious, like, how are you dialing it back? Why are you dialing it back? Yeah, what was your findings doing that? I think that our findings are mostly, it's sort of one of focus. We're trying to, we're trying to build an infrastructure that's as useful as possible for as, as many use cases. And what we found after we sort of released this club demo and the sort of relayer uh, associated with that is that people actually do want to do things that look like co-processing, like a sort of ZK AMM case. Uh, we've actually done some governance examples where the voting power is computed uh, off-chain in a co-processor model. But effectively, the way in which we were sort of relaying the state between between Bonsai and the on-chain application, everybody wanted to do it differently. So I think we're really trying to focus on this base, very simple, you want a proof, we'll get it on-chain for you in a way you can reason about it. And, and we're, we want to kind of let the market uh, help explore and discover what the right interaction modalities are, rather than trying to come up with a highly opinionated solution now. Mm. So I see Bonsai more as a, a way to build co-processors and libraries and, and things that can um, reason about on-chain state and yeah, we might come up with a more opinionated take in the future so i wouldn't say that we won't um almost certainly will but there's there's a lot of exploration left to do i think i mean is that not what a coprocessor is anyway just off-chain execution being proven on-chain yeah sort of but i think i think different people like there's an interesting question of where the state lives which state is attested to is it a roll-up is all of the state necessary on chain who has to agree that the state is valid. So I think I think in regard to a lot of those questions, I think that we want to allow people to be fairly flexible in what the answers to those are. We want to be able to support, you know, roll up kinds of use cases or things where all the state really is on chain and it's purely just doing processing. Um, and so I think that our, our sort of goal is to figure out what is the minimum API that by which someone can generate a proof and get it on chain. Um, and I think there's really sort of two use cases where the proof is initially requested on chain and then run and then um, returns. And then there's, which is sort of more the coprocessor kind of use case. Um, and then there's actually, we also want to be able to support, for example, people requesting proofs off chain and having those land on chain as well. Um, so, you know, if someone just wants to talk to the web to API and get to ask for a proof to be generated, right? So I think we're, our goal is it's also sort of a minimal viable product kind of a, a mechanism. We would like to get something that is usable for real applications, you know, on mainnet as soon as we can. And I think in terms of we've been also spending a fair amount of time uh, on security, uh, we've you know uh, engaged like three different auditing firms. We're hoping to be through uh, a lot of that soon. Um, we're sort of dotting our I's, crossing our T's, sort of getting ready to have something that we feel we can stand behind in terms of being used for real applications with actual locked value behind them. Mm. Um, so I think that that's we're trying to get to that place. Um, as rapidly as possible. Uh, and I think to some extent, we're trying to keep the feature set minimal so that people who have different ways of they want to interact with it can all make use of it um, and sort of see what the market actually wants. Was Bonsai then a little bit like a, a showcase of what's possible? To some extent, but really the intention is that it's going to be this decentralized network that's useful for, for proving things at scale. That's the long-term vision for it. Um, okay. Uh, initially, you know, when we in the East Denver timeframe, um, the intention was to like get it out into the market. I think much quicker, but you know, uh, I think reality intervened, and there's a lot more work we had to do on user friendliness and, and all of this. So, Bonsai Testnet Zero will be on chain this um, yeah this year, and people oh. will be able to write um, you know production apps if they're if they decide that the that the risk tolerance is uh, in, in line with their application. I guess. <laughs> Let's move on to another kind of announcement release more recently. Zeth or Z-F? I don't know how I say it. Zeth? Yeah, I mean, we say Zeth like Geth because in our mind okay. it's basically a, it's like an ETH client, but lots of people say it Zeth as well. So, Zeth. you know, I think you can say it however you, however you want. Can I do the Canadian? The Zeth? Yeah. <laughs> Did you just say yeah. that, Nico? Yeah, Sorry. same. <laughs> we'll allow it. Um, Zeth, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so an interesting thing about how Zeth came about is that maybe listeners know this, maybe they don't, but Optimism Foundation actually released an RFP for helping ZKFI the Optimism stack. Yeah, um, us and O1 Labs were both uh, selected for that, and team. 
Yeah. The, um, the approach that, uh, you know, that the OP foundation sort of asked for and is pretty similar to the one that the MENA team is exploring is basically ZKFIing the sort of existing fraud proof system. We proposed a different architecture where we actually, um, take the sort of rust clients for optimism and then go about producing validity proofs and potentially then using that to build a fraud proof system or even just use that to build pure validity proofs. So as part of this, the first step was really to be able to prove ETH blocks. We, we, we'd actually started some of that work in advance because the idea of proving an ETH block is just an obvious, interesting thing to do once you have a general purpose ZK uh, proving system, but then with the, you know, optimism RFP that sort of accelerated our work on that. But but it turned out it was actually a significantly less complex project than we had anticipated. And we had some amazing work um, by uh, our team on that. Uh, but, but, but it was uh, not a huge engineering project inside of our company. Mm. Um, and, and so there was sort of, we decided, we, it's in some ways, I, I personally think of it a little bit as like a, a showcase for the power of general purpose uh, ZK and how you can take some very complicated thing that would take a very long time uh, to write a, a full circuit for a, you know, a type one EVM and we could just re mostly just recompile code. There were some like slight um, changes to the way we had to get Merkle proofs in and things like that for efficiency. But but it, largely it was the vast majority of that project is existing code. Yeah, so I think it took two engineers three weeks or something like that to get Whoa. to get Zeph done. Um, so slightly different scale of effort relative to other zk EVMs. I know that when we last spoke, you didn't have Go support, but now I'm curious, how did you get the, like, it sounds like a geth fork well, with ZK. Well, it's Ref and our EVM. So we oh. actually, Go still, Go still doesn't uh. work. Um, and that's that's largely due to, like, the fact that we use RISC-32. Uh, it's a subset of the RISC-5, uh, okay. or a different flavor of RISC-5. RISC-5 has many flavors, um, and, and Go only supports some of them. I think one thing that is notable is that with regard to the uh, sort of next version of the circuit, um, one of the things that we uh, intend to do is support uh, a wider sort of set of SKUs, uh, if you will, of RISC-V processors, including um, a SKU that will uh, run Go, which will, I think, be oh. an interesting and unlocking feature. Um, although I think there's also still some amount of work that's going to be required from a language support perspective to make that as easy mm. of a process as it is currently um, with the existing Rust uh, versions of things. But, yeah. Yeah, Go is particularly hard to support. You've seen a couple other projects you sort of tried to do general purpose with like ZK, LLVM, and so forth. And it turns out like Go doesn't really use LLVM, so that's actually not a, even a viable path there. But I think there has recently been uh, some progress towards getting Geth to work inside um, Wasm, which is actually also a potentially viable route that that one could run on top of Risk Zero. Hmm. Yeah, my bad. I just, I kind of missed Reth. I didn't think about it. But it's like, <laughs> this is going to sound so naive. It's a full operational client being used. What Do we know the percentage? Like it's it took over, I guess, from like what Parity Ethereum used to be long, long ago and then Open Ethereum. I think they still consider it like you shouldn't be running. Uh, I think it's still considered like in beta, but that doesn't stop okay. people from brave, brave people from running nodes anyway. Huh. So then you had an already Rust, like already written in Rust client, you could fork that, add this validity. But I guess like if someone wanted to run Zeth, like can they already run it and get the ZK pr property? Yes. Okay. But it's just validity. It's not privacy. Uh, I mean, you could get privacy out of it if you wanted to build a, if you wanted to create a private EVM proof off chain, you could totally do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Of course, EVM isn't really... Yeah, doesn't have specific considerations for privacy since it's meant to be all run in the public. So I think there's like, uh, but but in terms of the actual, it it is does have the full zk support. So I could okay. prove to you, for example, actually there are privacy use cases, particularly for block builders. Like I could, for example, prove to you that I have I can build a block that has you know such and such number of transactions with you know this much MEV or whatever the whatever the thing you're interested in hmm. um, is. Uh, now, now I don't think that that's likely to be economically 
reasonable in the near term, just given the uh, sort of the latency requirements for block building as an industry. But um, it is an interesting conceptual idea. Some teams out there are using actually Ethereum blockchains for various um, internal sort of corporate supply chain management. But you could imagine using something like Zeth to prove something about the state of a private Ethereum chain. Mm. Uh, elsewhere. So if somebody did want to invest in, you know, building uh, some form of private uh, infrastructure on top of ETH and and ZK attest to state about it, you can absolutely use uh, this kind of uh, Zeth architecture and crates to do that. How long does it take to prove like one block? Yeah, well, that depends on how many GPUs you use. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, I think 15 minutes is the fastest we've seen, Whoa, okay. but, um, expect to, expect to make that quite a bit faster here in the future. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that's, that's interesting about, uh, the feasibility of using a uh, Zeth in the real world is also that right now the cost to produce a block is about $10, uh, of compute. I think in terms of speed, wall clock time, we do want to bring that down. But I think that a lot of the thing, these systems, the economic viability of doing this, for example, on, let's say, all of Ethereum all the time, is really determined by the sort of cost of doing this sort of ZK uh, validity proof, um, right? So I think that, that, that we're also very much focusing on bringing that cost down as well as the sort of performance in the wall clock sense. Mm. Both of these products, Bonsai and Zeth, Zeth, I'm just sort of curious how these interface with the RISC-V base. Like, I don't, like, to me, they sound, like, separate. They're really not. So this okay. is, like, you take, if you look at the Zeth code base, it's really just a fork of, um, of REVM and REF, I think, with uh, a couple other packages. And you really just basically take the EVM block, pass it in, and say, produce proof that this is correct. And, and also, what's the new state after this? So it actually computes all the state transitions, tells you what the new state is, and provides a ZK proof that it was done correctly. On risk 5 That's right. Ah, see, this is the part I'm, mix, I'm yeah. missing. Like, yeah, like so the that... Rust compiler takes the, the Zeth code, compiles it to risk 5 and then we have this sort of host-guest abstraction. The host loads this guest binary in risk 5 passes it the state, and says, hey, run this program, which is the EVM, oh. on this state, which is the state of the last block, and all of the transactions that people want to you know, put into the next block. Okay, go run this, and then that runs on the risk zero uh, ZKVM in risk five, simulated, and produces this proof that it says, okay, here's the new state of your next block. Okay. But like the amount of glue you have to do there is like 10 lines of code. And, and what's also, and in terms of the way that Bonsai relates, Bonsai is simply a service for running things in Risk Zero. It's simply a service for running these emulated Risk Five machines, but much faster via parallelism. Okay. Basically. Yeah, and then I think Bonsai also has some additional features in terms of. Um, well, it has this sort of recursion element to roll things up, and then it has this Stark to Snark mechanism, so you can actually verify the proofs on chain. Because normally our, our proofs are Starks; they're quite large. You could verify them on chain, but it's very expensive. So we have this other separate mechanism, and these are things that we'll be opening up as well in, as soon as we're done with uh, security audits. We didn't mm -hmm. want people to get too too carried away there with the ability to prove arbitrarily large things on chain. So. Actually, that's when you talk about what happened in the last year. One of the important things that happened in this last year is this sort of proof wrapping mechanism that allows it to be economically feasible to verify our proofs on Ethereum. And I think that that was also a pretty large engineering task uh, that was a big enabler going forward. Is that where you were using the fry based with the with the Groth sixteen wrapper? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. Okay. So one of your colleagues, Paul, gave a talk at CK Summit ten. We'll add the link to that in the show notes. That was actually a topic I thought we could chat a little bit about. This is a new creation since we spoke last, I guess. That's right. So we basically, if you look at it, one of the wonderful things about uh, Starks and Fry is that they're they're very efficient, especially for VM like systems. You could produce them quite quickly. They're GPU acceleratable. There's a lot of good things about them. Um, however, the proof sizes are significantly larger. And verifying a Stark or a Fry-based system at all uh, on Ethereum is very expensive. Uh, and, and in fact, almost not 
feasible. Uh, you can, in fact, do it like in, in you know, for example, Starkware uh, managed to make it work. Um, but the engineering required was pretty extensive. And also they, there was a lot of decisions about uh, how many bits of security and sort of things like that that were actually uh, with their proof system that were driven by this, like how hard it is to engineer this verifier for um, Firebase systems on chain. So what we ended up doing is taking another proof system that we knew to be, you know, quite efficient on chain, which is Groth 16. Um, and we basically built a verifier for our Stark proofs that ran inside of Groth 16. And so rather than directly verify the Stark proof on chain, instead we verify it in another proof system and then verify that proof on chain. So it adds one extra layer of wrapping but it basically uh, massively reduces both the size of the proof and the cost of verifying it on chain. On the other hand, like Fry's and Starks were completely untrusted in terms of setup, and now we've introduced this potential sort of trusted setup component with Groth 16. I will say that it's we didn't actually, it's not like we wrote it to use Groth 16. Jeremy can talk more about this. But we actually take our verifier circuit and our compiler produces circom as an output which we then use the circom itself to produce the Groth 16 circuit. Um, so we actually tried Fafonk and would prefer to sort of move in that direction, but uh, there were some, uh, some engineering challenges there. We expect to see the sort of on-chain verification mechanism uh, support many different kinds of snarks in the future. It's just like Groth 16 was the most mature, and so it kind of worked faster. And at this point, we're just trying to get our proofs on chain as quickly as we can so people can start learning how to use these things in an interesting on-chain context like we're starting to see. I know that other teams are using the same technique. Are people rewriting the same Stark verification circuit or is there like some kind of general effort to get things together? As far as I know, everyone's doing their own version of things. In our particular case, we were lucky in some sense because we have a lot of internal compiler technology which we also hope to um, open source at some point but but the one of the key things is that because we use recursion we had to describe our verifier in a somewhat circuit friendly way for the use in recursion and we had a bunch of compiler work that actually translated our verifier into um, something that we could verify uh, inside of one of these systems already. And so we were able to retarget that to CIRCOM without a huge amount of, well, I mean, it was a fair amount of effort, but not an insane amount of effort. So, so, so in that sense, from our perspective, that was a technically easier route. And I think that different people are taking sort of different um, sort of mechanisms for, for this. Uh, you know, one thing that we're also interested in doing is we're starting to look into running other verifiers inside of the RISC-V VM so that we can actually uh, be a place to compose a lot of different kinds of other proof systems. Like, for example, one of the things that, uh, just in terms of a funny application, there's some people interested in using um, Ezekiel, which is like a basically zero-knowledge proof system for ML. Um, but one of the problems is if I want to prove, for example, that some JPEG that has a certain hash is a picture of a cat, well, the process of converting the raw pixel values into the is a cat is pretty well handled by the sort of existing ML, um, ZKML systems. But the process of turning the JPEG into pixels is actually rather difficult to encode in a circuit, but it's very easy to write to, to just import some Rust library and then do it. And so sort of there's this idea that, okay, well, we can, we can, we can use the existing ZKML thing to prove the second half. Then we can verify that as well mm -hmm. as do the JPEG decoding in a program in our system. And then we can either do the Stark to Snark on it and then get a very small single proof that's verifiable on chain that this JPEG is in fact a cat, right? You know, so lots of fun applications. You know, people use TensorFlow or PyTorch to interact with ML systems, and you have to build a lot of the sort of ancillary um, logic around your ML pipeline, and people prefer to do that in higher-level languages and utilize libraries. But then, obviously, when you go to actually run the nuts and bolts of the ML algorithm, you obviously are using a very specialized execution environment. Hmm. Although we will have some really fun... Um, uh, ML stuff coming out uh, on top of on top of risk zero. That's more like decision trees and things people use to build risk models, which I think are very fascinating in the zk uh, context. 
So I guess this like RIS0 plus Ezekiel thing is kind of like a CPU plus another chip specifically for ML, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And we, we actually anticipate, you know, with this general recursion-based mechanism that we're using, we actually are will likely start to see not only different SKUs of um, processors, uh, you know, since we're going to probably somewhat generalize uh, like our RISC-V support, but we'll also see other kinds of interesting specialized circuits or accelerators, uh, or, you know, that, that, that will all be sort of able to be part of a single ecosystem via the use of recursion. Um, so I think that that's actually a, a, a super exciting direction over the next, you know, period of time. You sort of, you know, you're talking about having the Fry-based recursion wrapped in the Gross 16 wrapper. Do you actually envision sticking with that? You sort of said, like, you do it because of CIRCOM, because that's what CIRCOM produces, or that's where it's what it's built on. But, like, is that the final version that you go live with? It's more like, like, CIRCOM supports a number of proof backends. Okay. So you can take a CIRCOM circuit, and you can have that be verified in Gross 16 or Flonk, or I don't even know all the, the different... Um, modalities that it supports. But effectively, a ton of work was done on the Groth 16 backend oh, okay. uh, by other people to make it support these giant circuits, because it's a quite large circuit. So Faflanc just broke. So I think our intention our intention is very much to get to a trustless uh, verification. It's just, um, it's just a matter of time and backlog. Do, do you think this is like a... I'm curious, uh, Jeremy can go ahead, but then I'm also curious to get your take on how important this is to the ecosystem. I've seen a lot of people uh, talking about uh, trusted setup woes mm. recently, but I don't really know the context. Yeah. I was just going to add one small thing, which was that, you know, our goal, the reason for doing this is to make something that is Ethereum friendly. And I think aside from a new pre-compile in Ethereum, you know, Fry-based systems will never be friendly to verify directly. So there'll always be a wrapping between a Fry-based system and something that's verified on Ethereum in particular. For other chains, not necessarily. Wasm-based chains, it's actually very straightforward to verify Fry-based things, for example. You know, which exact proof system, whether it's Groth 16 indefinitely, I think that's probably unlikely. Uh, it'll probably be something different, but yeah. And on the trusted setup point that you were just asking, I mean, I think... It's always been the thing that teams have to do, but don't really want to do, but they have to do it. And then they, you know, there's been crazy develop. Kobe, my sometimes co-host, Nico's colleague, has developed like all these really cool techniques to do trusted setups better. But even when I ask him like, well, you know, is is this going to end up in like textbooks? And he's like, no, we want to make this obsolete, actually. (laughs) Like I'm creating it, but hopefully we don't have to use it too long. So my take is like, it depends who your adversary is. Yeah. If you're fine with this one out of many participants assumption, then you're okay. If you start like being extremely paranoid and thinking like, oh, I can't even trust a single person. If you move to something like a Pedersen commitment, you still need to trust that the curve you're using is not backdoored. If you're using Fry, you need to assume that your hash function is collision resistant. So if you're going as far as saying, I don't trust one of these participants, like trust no one, why do you then trust the curve? Why do you then trust like the hash function? Like this is, maybe I'm being a bit paranoid by this, but like if you're really trying to say in the grand scheme of things, like there is a ground truth and I don't need to trust anyone about it. None of these schemes give you that. None Whoa. of cryptography was, is going to give you that. Just cash underneath your mattress at that point, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you use an existing trusted setup SRS that's already been created, like maybe the Ethereum one, like, or do you have to manually run a trusted setup yourself? So uh, some of the systems have a have a, a multi-circuit trusted setup, so a trusted setup that could be used for different circuits. Uh, Groth 16, at least the way we're using it right now, uh, does have some circuit-specific components. Uh, and so while we could use, for example, the, the powers of tau part of it, we don't need to run our own trusted setup because that's already been done. And there's like, you know, ones that are well uh, established. The, the There are some parts that are unfortunately circuit-specific. Oh. Um, so, 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 but luckily I think we'll eventually get to a proof system where that is not the case. So, okay. Do you think you'll launch with this though? Yes. Like mainnet? Testnet zero will be the Graph 16 version. Okay. And um, if people don't want to use it because of that, I guess that will be interesting market data. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, the intention is to get, to get um, somewhere else before that. I see. 
I, we might get lucky. I mean, I think at this point, um, you know, we're sort of the, it is still possible that the difference between uh, what we have and what we need for some alternative proof system is small because we, there's still a lot of investigation work to be done. But my, the sort of plan of record, if you will, is to go forward with Graph 16 for now. Since we're on the topic of proof systems, this is no longer broad recursion, but I want to bring up like the new claims about VMs and lookup singularity, right? <laughs> These Lasso and Jolt papers. Um, so this new approach, or this approach that has been theorized and now is supposedly practical, which is I just have one big lookup table and that's going to be my processor. Is this something that you've looked at? Is this something that is I don't know, the next evolution for VMs? So we've we've looked at it quite a bit. Um, at, you know, I've, I read the paper and we've done a fair amount of analysis. And the truth is, is it's not exactly clear what the performance delta will be at a practical level because some of the components are still unimplemented. And um, I have tried on a number of occasions to do good back of the envelope numbers, but you know, the reality is, is that. Um, performance in the real world is actually quite complicated and even getting the back of the envelopes, I just uh, never got to uh, the bottom of that. Um, so the short version is that our interest as a company is we are fundamentally most concerned with bringing ZK to people in a very usable form. Um, and we really strongly believe that the sort of using an existing ISA is a good way to do that. And if it turns out that, uh, you know, when these things start to get built, that it looks like it's a better way to go than our current proof system, um, we will very likely adopt them. And we are going to continue to uh, experiment with those things internally and be in a place where we're prepared to um, make those changes if need be. But as, as it sits right now, um, you know, we have a very carefully engineered, very functional, works today sort of system. Um, and so if you ask me what will it look like three years out, um, it's very possible that uh, the proof system will change dramatically over that time frame. Um, I mean, there's still new mathematics to be developed and new ideas to be had. Um, so I, I, do, I am definitely uh, interested and uh, at least somewhat bullish on these new techniques, but I think it, there's still a little bit of a time and real benchmark data will tell. Mm. You had sort of mentioned WASM as interesting. How would that interface with what you have? So there are a couple of ways. Uh, so we've actually, uh, the, the most naive way, and we've actually done this, is just to take a WASM interpreter, like the WASMI crate, and then you can just take a WASM binary. It's pretty convoluted if you're taking a WASM binary, running it through an interpreter, which is compiled to RISC-V, which is then a VM, which is then creating a proof of the it's basically creating a proof of the interpretation of a WASM binary. It's like, By, you know, the inception meme of, like, <laughs> we must go deeper. Must go deeper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you've got to run an interpreter, it's find something, like, run get on top of WASM, on top of Resero, and then you will have completed the thing. And your proof will never complete, but the, the abstractional loop will have completed. Um, anyway, Jeremy can talk about, like, some other approaches to running WASM, though. Yeah, yeah. So we're actually, we're actually um, one of our, sort of, with the new circuit work, we are sort of separating out a lot of the sort of core, like, oh, here's a 32-bit multiplier unit. And uh, it was sort of sort of dividing up the circuit so it's less monolithic uh, with the intent that one could put, for example, a different sort of instruction decoder front end onto what is roughly similar reusable components for the um, sort of circuit and thus get different kinds of VMs. Uh, you know, I think initially we're largely focusing on going a little bit wider in terms of the types of risk uh, five variations we support. Uh, that said, though, I do think that that same mechanism will probably eventually get to things like WASM support. There's also some sort of transcompilation techniques we've looked at on some of that as well. Um, the one thing that's slightly trickier on WASM is it does have a sort of a higher bar in terms of the minimum sort of operations that are required, like, for example, floating point support or things like that. Um, whereas uh, right now, all of that in RISC-V is done through software emulation. So that's a very nice feature for us. So we've already mentioned a couple use cases uh, and sort of categories of use cases. So like ZKML, um, the ZKAMM experiment. But yeah, I just was wondering if there's any other experiments or use cases that you're already seeing emerging. And also, 
I think, Brian, you had mentioned that like something in the architecture was sort of use case dependent. So maybe we can bring that back. I mean, I don't know how much um, and the architecture is use case dependent. I think I was talking about um, moving sort of moving away from this relayer contract we had built in the sort of ZK coprocessor oh, okay. model and basically letting teams um, design that to be what they want. So we, we've seen people experiment with sort of on-chain with governance coprocessors, and they had very specific um, mechanisms they wanted uh, for their particular use case. And then if you look at the sort of ZK AMM with its like pool locking and all this, like it's quite a sophisticated mechanism there. And um it's like not really what we had. I mean, we, if you think about this, you start to realize, yes, obviously you need some way to lock a pool if you're going to be using asynchronous um, transactions over over a you know, formerly single-threaded, completely uh, lock in lockstep kind of blockchain. So yeah, the goal with Bonsai and what we're doing now is to, is to minimize what we're offering to let people kind of design these mechanisms uh, on their own because they do seem to vary based on based on the kinds of what actual computation going on, right? In the Uniswap case, if you looked at the debate that happened sort of after that on the coprocessors uh, telegram, people were like asking, you know, specifically what's the sort of lockup interval for these when you lock a pool and then you have to wonder how that interacts with MEV and all kinds of other mm. uh considerations. Whereas in a voting example, you might not care about that at all. You might care more about um, maintaining privacy or not knowing the totals until some later date or something like this. And, and of course, there's also uses for fraud proofs or roll-ups, which are also sort of applications. I think there's a lot of interest in adding ZK to uh, existing fraud proof systems are moving toward validity proofs for different uh, optimistic chains, which we're also looking into in terms of use cases. Um, and we actually also have a couple of additional showcase sort of use cases that we're working on internally, um, sort of similar to Zeth that we will intend to uh put out over the next couple of weeks. I think Zeth was really made people aware of the power of sort of what you can do with a general purpose ZK system. And I think one of our goals in terms of use cases is to, to try to continue to build sort of not necessarily products, but but in sort of like starting points, or, or one might say reference applications for, for yes. people uh, that make use of the different power of, of ZK. So. Mm. Right. Like we are seeing a lot of people try to build these kind of hybrid ZK slash fraud proof systems and engineering that in a way where the, the such that the sort of fraud proofing engine is actually capable of performing the sort of fraud proofs that you wanted to be able to. Um, you know, there's a lot of thought that needs to sort of go into that to get it right. Mm. Um, so we'll, we'll be like building some reference implementations and helping teams get the, the, these kind of architectures correct. The other thing I guess I did mention earlier is that the the Polybase team put out some really cool benchmarks that we've been um, working on. You can see them at um, zkbench.dev. And a sort of interesting aspect there, if you look at, uh, at the Resero benchmark, you'll realize that pretty much every benchmark takes uh, six seconds plus a tiny, tiny bit of additional time uh, in almost every case. Uh, and it's basically the continuations mechanism and the way it currently is designed has to do this sort of build up like a, a Merkle tree of various uh, memory page tables and stuff. So verifying all this adds a certain amount of overhead. So we basically can't do small proofs faster than six seconds right now. It's like the smallest proof takes six seconds no matter what. So mm -hmm. it's kind of funny. You can get anything you want proven in six seconds. So we've sort of biased the current architecture towards, well, there's lots of stuff we could do to improve that kind of runtime. But right now we're very focused on, you know, how do you prove things the size of Zeth, which are like 4,000 1 million cycle blocks. Um, so it's just like a completely different scale. Mm. But there is some overhead uh, that you incur when you start to build a system with the sort of continuations feature in mind that, you know, optimizing that out for smaller um, spot proofs and stuff will, will take quite a while, I think. And I suspect, you know, with the uh, the sort of next revision of the circuit, we'll have sort of this sort of optional f features like, well, this is the with continuations or without continuations version. So we can remove a lot of that overhead. But I think our focus has very much been on the very large applications um, where I think it's just almost impossible to do with any other system and for those kinds of use cases. Cool. Is there any other use cases that are sort of on your mind, maybe more like tangible end user use cases? 
that you've seen at hackathons? Yes, but I don't know that I can necessarily talk about some of them yet. Um, But I will say that uh, there are some really interesting, maybe more consumer use cases where an interesting kind of dynamic that we're seeing is that so when we finally got Bonsai done um, and people were able to use it, the sort of effective throughput of the system did go up by, you know, for an end user by about like 20x or so. So that in and of itself sort of brought a whole new set of uh, potential computations into a, into sort of a feasibility realm where, you know, two minutes is too slow, but but 20 seconds is okay or 10 seconds is okay. So I do think every time you sort of see a, a new leap in proof system kind of speed and um, capability, new sets of uh, use cases do start to, to open up. And hopefully we'll be able to talk more about some of those in the future. Or we see some of them built at CK Hack Istanbul, which is coming up. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. I guess now we can talk a little bit about what's next and what's coming down the line. I do have one question, though, before we jump into that, which is, is Risk Zero going to be an L1 or is Risk Zero going to be an L2? Is this decided? <laughs> I mean, well, okay. L2s don't exist anymore. <laughs> last week, right? so. Or a co-processor, I guess. Or a co-processor. <laughs> yeah. Or a utility chain. Sometimes I think of it as more of like a utility chain. Maybe it will have state of its own, which makes it start to look like an L1. But if the primary purpose of it is to augment other ecosystems and help help yeah. make them more capable, which is sort of like a coprocessor narrative, then then in that context, it's a coprocessor. But then if you did build an application just on top of it, then I guess it would be an L1. So um, I, I don't think it's going to be an L2. That said, we expect it ideally to be useful for all these L2s and, um, and on Ethereum itself. So the answer essentially is all of the above. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. we, we have a very modular way of looking at these things, I think, uh, in, in the sense that what we would like to do is find a way to make a, it possible for people to generate proofs in a decentralized manner and for the economics of that to make sense for people. And that is the entire goal. And I think that uh, there are lots of ways that that ends up happening in the existing systems. But I think that we're not really married to a particular sort of existing uh, sort of design for that sort of decentralization process. Some of the features we've, uh, we'd like to bring to market that, you know, if we can talk about in the ne- next year sometime, um, you know, might rely on some amount of state being stored somewhere, uh, which, you know, could be in other DA layers. It could be directly on a chain that we control and we'll see mm. how all that evolves. So there's still a lot of exploration to, to figure out what the right final form is. But for now, it's going to be more the, the thing we're going to launch is basically going to be this sort of stateless coprocessor type model. Cool. All right. So what's next? What's coming up? What can people look out for? ZKVM 1.0, not too long after that, uh, a new version of some of the circuits. Um, most importantly, though, I think is going to be being able to get uh, proofs and proving using Risk Zero Onta mainnet. Is ZKVM different from Seth then? It's not a ZKEVM? So ZKVM is the Risk Five is the Risk Five ah. ZK proving engine. Got it. So if you run Reth on top of the ZKVM, you now have a ZKEVM. Got it. Okay. Yes. So so the what the work to sort of get to one O has been basically exploring a bunch of different API options, getting the sort of continuations figured out, figuring out what the actual abstractions and everything we want to exist there are, and then actually orienting the system so it's maintainable in the long term, so it's auditable, so people can understand the audits. All of this has basically been the the bulk of the sort of fit and finish work that's required in our minds to actually call something 1.0, whereby once that's out, we intend to support that sort of API for a long time going forward. So people should be able to build their systems with confidence on top of this. That's mainnet. Well, so that's that's basically the predecessor to mainnet. So by building the ZKVM sort of 1.0, that gives the sort of foundational stability that you can then use to have that we're then comfortable with sort of launching Bonsai onto mainnet on top Ah. of that. Along with the release of the sort of start to snark uh, system and the recursive system to open source, people will be able to, if they want to run risk zero proofs at home on their own machines, whatever, you know, basically post those um, completely permissionlessly 
two chains. So there's the one o maturity is basically getting to the point where everybody can use the system and can put it on chain permissionlessly if they want to. Simultaneously, we'll be launching this Bonsai Testnet Zero, which will be an actual supported, um, still kind of test-ish red like doneness, but um, based on a really confident sort of foundation. So if people want to deploy real apps on it, we expect um, we expect people to be able to do that. But we're not necessarily promising that we figured out the pricing model or the right mechanisms or anything. It's basically the simplest thing we can get so we can so we can get feedback from people uh, and figure out what the right long-term solution is. Because when you start thinking about how do you bring a proving system that's that's really this kind of coprocessor or utility chain or proving market or any of these things, uh, you start to it's really easy to just spend way too much time thinking about what the right thing to do is without uh, in absentia of, of real data. So mm-hmm. do you expect other bonsais to emerge not from your team living on the VM? Probably at some point. People will certainly be able to do that in the future. Ideally, people would just participate in sort of bonsai itself, and there'll be ways for other people to do that coming up in the future. So bonsai will get more and more open in terms of the sets of people that can participate in it in a meaningful way. That said, you know, I think anytime there's anything of value, it'll probably be forked, you know? Maybe you don't want this comparison, but essentially like bonsai, it's sort of also what Starknet is doing with their like shared prover starting with like their own sort of proving infrastructure and like slowly opening it up. So I don't know if it's a useful model for people to think about or if you don't want to be boxed into that. Yeah, I don't think we really want to be boxed into that because I think we're going to move from where we're at to other people being able to contribute uh, much more okay, quickly. Okay. Than, so I'll stay away from <laughs> that. They have. But that is, it, is, it is a reasonable, um, yes, people have done similar things before and yes, Starknet is one of them. All right. Well, I want to say a big thank you, Brian and Jeremy, for coming back on the show and sharing with us this update and also like letting me and Nico ask all the questions we always wanted to know and were too afraid to ask. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. And looking forward to the secret client side use cases that you can't mention yet. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nico, for co-hosting this one, too. Thanks for having me on, Anna. I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Rachel, Henrik and Tanya and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.